Yo, we are back once again. This is the Wu Tang Podcast. I am Singard Superior. The Almighty AR is still on hiatus, but nonetheless, I have a very special guest with me on this episode. I have Paul Cantor, who is a writer, editor, and music producer. You can find some of his writing on Vice, Mass Appeal, Complex. Rolling Stone, MTV News, Billboard, Gawker, just to name a few, um, and everything like that. So, uh, Paul, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no doubt, man. Thanks for coming on. And if I am correct, you are from Staten Island, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm from Staten Island. Um, you know, I was a uh, producer. Uh, I still am a producer, um, you know, before I really was a writer. I grew, you know, I grew up in Staten Island. I I had a studio there in the early 2000s, um, and uh, I actually recorded some Wu Tang projects in my studio. I've worked with, you know, different members of, you know, Wu Tang. Um, some of the some of the the nine members, and then some of the affiliated guys. Um, so I have a lot of Wu Tang connections, despite the fact that. You know, I've written about them uh, and I've interviewed them and I've had I've done, you know, a million different things with those guys um, just based on, you know, being from Staten Island and, and you know, just being in the in, in the music industry, so to speak. You know, you so, yeah, you're the first person from Staten Island to come on the podcast. And I'm just curious to know if you can remember it all. What was like the time like when, you know, Wu-Tang uh, came out and, you know, what did that mean for Staten Island during the period? I mean, it was everything. Um, yeah, uh, like when Wu Tang Forever came out, that was probably one of the, you know, most life-altering, like life-altering experiences that you know a person could have um, as like a teenager uh, coming from you know a, a borough that is largely, you know, overlooked or forgotten um, because uh, Wu Tang itself was really big. You know, in the years after they debuted, but the but um, the hype around Wu Tang Forever, you know, was a real pop culture moment. You know, where pretty much it was broadly, you know, influential through you know across like a whole bunch of different things. They were like on MTV, and you know, it was just a groundswell of support. So I remember the day Wu-Tang Forever came out and everybody actually missing school to go get it, <laughs> um, you know, because you had to go to the record store. And um, w- there was a friend of mine in, in my school. I, I went to Port Richmond High School and he worked in one of the, there's not that many independent record shops on Staten Island, but he worked in one of the, the main ones. And um, I, I remember us all, like almost our entire, you know, senior class, well, I wasn't a senior yet, but but I, I mean, almost everybody missed school for that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, so, I mean, it was yeah, it was it was incredible, man. Like I I think about that period often. It was like you know, very influential in my life because uh, you know it was like one of the few times where where you were from actually mattered, you know, um, and that's important when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, I, I can imagine because I'm from Baltimore originally. You know, I, I really only get to go go back like once a year nowadays for the moment at least. But, um, but yeah, I, I can only imagine. You know, Baltimore hasn't exactly had like that breakout, you know, sensation or star. I mean, you know, of course we've had like you know local 
um, you know, music celebrities and everything like that, but no one that has like, you know, broken out on a on a on a really big commercial level. And, you know, it's funny that you talk about, you know, uh, you know, everyone skipping school and everything like that for um, for the occasion during the period, because, uh, well, first of all, if you guys haven't realized, this uh, episode is on Wu-Tang Forever, the first disc of Wu-Tang Forever to be um, a bit more specific. And uh, I had Chris Piersnick on the show to discuss um, disc two, which you guys will hear soon. And he said the same thing about people skipping class. But if I recall properly, um, it's been a while. I think he said that he didn't miss school. I think he did say that. I Actually, I didn't miss school either. Um, I remember going to get it after school. I mean, which, you know, it's like no disrespect to like anybody that missed school, you know, but I like I'm Facebook friends with a lot of those people now. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, a lot of them ain't doing too much with themselves, which I think says a lot about their priorities, (laughs) you know, so like, you know. It was, you know, it's just, I, you know, I, I didn't skip school, you know, for whatever reason. I, I figured, you know, it could wait, but a lot of other people did. I miss, I skipped school for a lot of other fucking reasons and a lot of other dumb shit, but but that I did not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I barely even went to school for for a couple of years, but you know at that time i that was not a valid reason to skip it <laughs> yeah i mean hey i think i think all of us have skipped school in one way or another for whatever reason it was for you know just for experimentation or whatever i had the chance to go to staten island once and i mean it's not really anything you know not i don't, I don't even know if the story is really worth telling i'm gonna say it anyway because i would i had the chance i had the opportunity i was like doing some kind of like fellowship school kind of stuff um and i was in new york for about six weeks and that's like my first time like really like being in new york you know i've been there before but like actually being like just being a part of it for the moment and i wanted to go to all the five bureaus but um i was really um caught up in making it to staten island more so than anything because of the fact that wu-tang came from staten island so i felt like um, I was making like a pillage to to um, Staten Island just to you know just to see what what it was like. So yeah, it was like a big moment for me personally. You know, being what how old was I? Maybe twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, I think twenty two. And you know, taking the ferry over and then just having that experience. Um, I tried to walk. You know, because like it's where the ferry like lets you off. It's like by that baseball park. If it's still there, I'm assuming it's still there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, I tried to go deeper into the the interior of Staten Island when people started looking at me and, you know, I didn't have like a, you know, anyone to, you know, to vouch for me or anything. So I just kind of stayed where I was and smoked a cigar and then I left. But I feel like <laughs> I feel like I made I made the trip for the sake of Wu-Tang, um, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, a lot of people. I mean, there's that great scene in the movie Black and White, right, where they go out to the – I don't know if you've seen that, but um, they go out to, you know, quote-unquote the wall to see, you know, um, the the graffiti, like the, the memorial for Two Cent and, you know, um, uh, the Can It Be Also Simple stuff and all that. Mm. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people who are um, fans – you know, whether they're from the States or they're from Europe, I mean, people, um, you know, always go to that area, you know, that's like, um, like a hip hop destination, you know what I mean? It's like going to see Biggie's house or something, you know, you just, you just have to 
go by, you know, if you're um, just a passionate fan, you know what I'm saying? And Staten Island is very difficult to navigate if you don't really, you know, if you're kind of like by yourself, it's it's just not a, you know, it's not a very walkable place, you know, mm -hmm. um, to get to that area, you know, like Stapleton, Park Hill, you know, um, from the ferry, you know, you could take a cab or whatever, but I mean, it's, it's, it's still like, you know, 20, 25 minutes, even on a bus, 30 minutes, you know, and it's maybe, I don't even know. It might, you know what I mean? It might be more than one bus you have to take. It's, and, and it's not, you know, I mean, no disrespect, but it's not the best area to be just walking around in. You know what I'm saying? Oh like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, it's not, look, I think you could walk around there and you wouldn't have a problem, but, but it, generally speaking, you know what I'm saying? Like I could see how somebody, you know, who's not from there, you know, would be like, yeah, I'm cool, man. I don't need to venture into that part of, you know, it's not that serious. Now, th now this is a question that I've always had is, is there like anything that, um, are there any characteristics that the clan itself they, that they have that sh that just like screams Staten Island? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. Um, I mean, for one, the language that they speak, you know, is very much like a. Um, I associate that with Staten Island, but it's it's more of like a it's more of like a five borough slang. Hmm. That you know, um, I don't think you will hear it as much now. I mean, you might hear it, you know, a little bit, you know, if you are around some older folks, you know, people in their, let's say, their mid forty, mid to late forties, early fifties, you know, who might be from a different era, like se like a seventies and eighties, you know, era of New York. Um, but a lot of you know people from Staten Island are like transients, you know. Um, there are people who came there from other boroughs, so they, you know, they were born in, let's say, Long Island or the Bronx or Brooklyn, and then their parents, like, kind of moved to Staten Island in search of, you know, kind of like more of a suburban type of situation. It was maybe a little bit cheaper, um, and it's more of like a working class borough, you know, but with, le with you know, a little bit less, shall we say, you know, crime than like maybe the Bronx had in the 70s or 80s. We still had a lot of crime, you know, it just just relatively speaking, it was less, you know. So the way those guys talk, you know, that that is in the way they rap and a lot of the slang they use, they use a lot of language that is, you know, like 5% speak. But I, I don't, you know, even though it is 5% of speak, it's at the same time, that's just like, black street language of the 70s and 80s you know what i'm saying like you know a lot of people you know from that generation um kind of like talk like that you know what i'm saying like i was just in a chinese restaurant like two days ago and like a couple of older black guys walked in they were had to be in their 50s and like the way they were talking was like it reminded me of how like a wu-tang rap song would sound <laughs> you know because it was just that that like that street talk, that, you know, that slang, you know, that, um, that they had, you know, not shaken off, you know what I'm saying? But, um, uh, and, and, and those dudes, like, you know, they just embraced that and put it on record. Um, a lot of it now is, has been mainstreamed, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause, cause Wu-Tang was so popular, you know, a lot of that slang kind of just became a part of the vernacular, you know, um, and the way people speak. 
but you really, you know, I'm not, it isn't to say like nobody had ever said, you know, um, you know, the word God or any of that stuff, like, you know, on records, because like Rakim and people like that had, you know, but they were kind of like, they really popularized it to another level, you know, um, and they aren't even the first people to do like the 5% stuff. I mean, like a lot of, you know, a lot of rappers had already done that. It's just they kind of like really, you know, hammered it home. But um, people on Staten Island are just nerdy as fuck, man. They're, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like a very, you know, it's an isolated place. So people are very much like um, are very much into, you know, comic books, and or at least they were back then, you know, comic books and just a lot of reading, a lot of like what I consider to be like street intelligence, you know, um, just people educating themselves and passing, you know, books and, you know, different learnings on, you know, through like almost like a hand to hand, um, you know, each one teach one type of situation, you know, um, and where they all come from, you know what I'm saying? That area is a little more densely populated, you know, cause like, if you go out to like the South Shore of Staten Island, it's dense, but it's it's houses, so people aren't really, you know, they're not necessarily on top of each other, you know. But if you live in Park Hill or Stapleton or West Brighton or New Brighton or any of those places, despite the fact that they have changed a lot in recent years, you're still really in a you know public housing project, you know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's just you know when you're in a building with you know 500 families, you know what I'm saying? Like everybody is a lot closer and. There's more. There's just a lot more talking going on. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think you know uh, a lot of that. You know, way that they are um, is definitely indicative of of like a you know a Staten Island thing. It's like half you know half like real urban like you know street talk, but then like this kind of like isolated you know almost weird you know oddball way of looking at things. You know. Um, which I think, you know, is in terms of like the names and the whole mythology of Wu-Tang, you know, I think they were able to even think about that shit because there was just so much time for them to just be alone, you know, because that's just the way Staten Island is, you know, like you could sit in your car for five hours and not see a person, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, you know, you can't do that in, you know, in a lot of other places, you know, so mm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that that's interesting. You know, like and aside from, you know, um, you know, dealing with, you know, some of the members and the affiliates personally, you know, via the studio and you being from Staten Island yourself. I also realized that you are in the acknowledgments to uh, Alvin Blanco's uh, book on uh, Rizzo and the Wu-Tang Clan. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, 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 I do remember yeah, I think he had asked me a couple questions for that book. He also did a a reading, like a like a Q and A thing. Actually, it was just a Q and A, but he did that out in Staten Island, and I think Red Bull actually was the sponsor. Ghostface and Raekwon and Capadonna, and I believe Inspector Deck. That might have been all, but they all came, you know. And he kind of like interviewed everybody, so that was really cool. That was that was probably about five six years ago, maybe seven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I re, um, yeah, I remember. I think it was through the yeah, the Red Bull Music Academy, and um, yeah, I, I remember uh, watching that and everything like that. But 
for you listeners out there, if you guys haven't checked that book out, you probably should. Alvin Blanco's uh, The Wu-Tang Clan and RZA, a trip through the 36 chambers, if I'm saying that correct correctly. But yeah, like, you know, that's where I get a lot of my information from for this podcast. Aside from, you know, the many articles that I read and peruse and everything like that that, um, that I can find. But that's like the epicenter, you know, that book and... Um, yeah, Alvin Blanco's book and uh, and of course the Wu Tang Manual, which are like the pillars of, um, you know, this podcast. I would say, uh, what uh, people in the clan have you worked with, and some of the affiliates also. You know, it's funny. Before, before, like about an hour before we were set to do this, I was actually trying to remember everything. So because some of it is 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 quite a bit in the past, but um, well, I mean, I did a couple of records on Ninth Prince's first like his solo one of his solo albums uh, i'm trying to remember the name of that album granddaddy flow not it wasn't on it was the one after granddaddy flow oh, okay um, uh we i did some stuff a bunch of stuff with like you know trife and a lot of the theodore <laughs> unit guys um I, i've i've engineered a little bit for raekwon uh, we recorded a You Got album in in my studio that I used to have, uh, which was the album The Hillside Scramblers. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I did produce a record for You God. Um, see what else? Um, man, there, I'm 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 probably forgetting some stuff, but a lot of it was like in the early 2000s, you mm. know. Um, and it's not that fresh in my memory, but. Probably some other stuff with Raekwon, like, because I had a lot of different connections with him. Like, Ray was very much, you know, in touch with, like, a lot of stuff on Staten Island for, uh, you know, a period of time. Um, and, he, and he still is. Um, uh, I think I did some stuff with Ghostface, but I don't think it ever came out. Like, I, I think the stuff got recorded and just, you know, is just sitting in a studio somewhere. <laughs> mm. Um you know, Ghostface's longtime manager, Mike Caruso, like I I grew up like playing basketball with him and uh, he's now like manages like 50 Cent and, you know, um, and, and he himself is like an interesting character with a long colored history of, you know, in, in New York City. Um, so, you know, it's just, you know, just being on Staten Island, you always have a lot of, you know, different connections to these guys. But one funny story I have, is I remember in maybe 1998 or 1999, I think it was 98. I remember because I used, to, you know, I started out rapping, and I remember like seeing Capadonna in the Staten Island Mall, literally just rapping for him for like 10 minutes straight, and right, you know, in the middle of the mall, and him, you know, really, really, you know, digging it, um, and then. Probably a couple years later when he put out his second album, I remember he had a little in-store at that same record store that I was talking about earlier that my friend worked at. They did an in-store for him for his album. Uh, I think it was called The Yin and the Yang. Mm -hmm. And I went and I get and I and I gave him like my little demo. <laughs> so I had like a little demo then, <laughs> and I was like, "Hey man, remember me?" And he was like, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, it was kind you know kind of. Yeah, kind of like um, it was just like a lot of crossing paths with those guys. But Ninth Prince, I used to talk to pretty regularly. You know what I'm saying? Then he went to jail for a bit, and I kind of like fell out of contact with him. Oh, I did a bunch of stuff with Shaheem, um, who's in jail now too, unfortunately. 
Um, I did a number of songs on his uh, album. Uh, I think it's called The Greatest Story Never Told. All of this stuff, you know, came out like kind of after, you know, after they were like super popular, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So I'm a little younger than those dudes are, you know what I'm saying? I'm 35. So uh, Shaheem himself might be like 40 now, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think we did that stuff in maybe 2003. I mean, when he had he had just come home from jail the first time. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you know, it's so interesting because, um, you know, like in Baltimore, you know, Capadonna was in Baltimore at one point and everything like that. And so um, I've never seen him in person, but I'll always have like, you know, my brother or whoever it would be. Like, I would see him at the mall or whatever. Um, and, you know, and other affiliates who, who are always around. But, um, you know, so another like, I mean, you, you just you, you've done like so many different things that, of course, I you know, we, I guess we just can't really touch on because of time. But, um, I you know, you like startups. I think you, you had like a podcasting startup that I would love to talk to you about. I mean, one uh, at some time moment or whatever like that. But to talk about music production, because uh music production is kind of like how you got into writing um and i'm curious to know because i think i know you i guess with anybody your setup has changed over time and me being a music producer myself um i'm curious to know what your setup is right now and like how it has changed over time because i i read somewhere that you were like using ableton is that uh, still correct uh yeah yeah i a couple of years ago i i kind of um I kind of moved away from, you know, using a lot of hardware and stuff like that, you know, MPCs and um, I have a lot of keyboards and stuff, but I don't really use them anymore. Um, I just use a lot of, you know, plugins and stuff like that. Um, But for the most part, yeah, just I just use Ableton. Um, Before that, I was mostly using Pro Tools. I was making beats, you know. In Pro Tools itself, you know, usually with like, let's say Reason or something like that, rewired into it, and then it just became a little bit. Some of the workflow was was not moving as fast as I'd have liked, so I, I switched to Ableton, um, which you know is just a little bit. I wouldn't say it's that much quicker, you know what I mean? But definitely like a little snappier than you know Pro Tools um, for sure. Uh, but yeah, that's. That's pretty much what I'm on now, and I just use a, I just use a piano, um, like a you know like a an electronic piano that I uh, is my controller, so to speak. Um, I don't really like you know uh, MIDI controllers or anything like that. I mean, I, I I I like weighted keys, and you know I like to play, so that's what I use. Yeah. Hmm. So so now does does writing take up most of your time or is it like kind of split between music production and writing? I haven't been doing as much production as I'd have I'd like because, um, well, I got married like two years ago and just I'm kind of like in so like uh, I don't know how you would describe it. Just I'm in kind of like in between spaces. You know, we're in a. We're in an apartment now, you know, which is a little bit different than uh, where I where I was living before. And you know, just some of your activities change. I think, you know, when your when your life changes, you know. So um, I'm still I still make beats and I'm still producing, but I haven't. 
I have to say I'm, I'm not on it as much as I was. Like I go through periods where, you know, maybe for a week or two, I'm really dialed in, you know, um, and it's kind of like playing basketball. If you haven't shot the ball in a couple in a couple months, I mean, you need like at least three, four days just to get your rhythm back, you know, um, just so you can kind of even feel the way the ball feels in your hand and everything is, you know, is, is, is moving nicely, you know. So I just go through periods where I'm really productive, you know, in terms of making beats. Um, and then, you know, writing, I, I try to do every day. Um, I think also some of it is age as well, you know what I mean? Like, you just get a little older and, um, like, the music that's speaking to you is a little bit different, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I had a couple of years where I wasn't really making a lot of beats. I was just learning how to play music because I didn't really, I didn't really know how to, I didn't even know anything about, I mean, I had very basic knowledge of just how to play but I had no real skills with my fingers or anything like that. Um, so I was just really into classical music and a lot of jazz and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of um, things that, you know, are more uh, just musical, you know. Uh, Hip hop is like, there's no, not to be disrespectful towards it or anything like that, but, you know, it is very, in terms of the arrangements and stuff like that, it can be very simple, you mm-hmm. know. So making a rap beat, you know, I can make a hundred rap beats in a week, you know what I'm saying? Like, but I, it would take me, it could take me like a week just to do the arrangement on one pop song, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's just a different skill set that you need to build. Um, so at a certain age, maybe like when I was about 25 or so, 26, I realized like, okay, I'm good enough at making beats, right? What I'm not good enough at is... I'm not a good enough arranger and I'm not a good enough, I can't play well enough and I'm not a good enough songwriter. So I just wanted to spend, you know, some time learning how to do that. And so I kind of was involved in that for a few years. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was like a lot more into music now, like, like music itself than, you know, production, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, you know, writing has its own rhythm to it, um, and you know you can be like type typing a sentence, and you you're you got a beat in your head that you're kind of going to, and nobody else can really hear it, but you can. And when the words come out on a page, and a person reads them, you know, in some way, it's like a music of itself. Um, um, so it's all very related. Uh, it's you know, and so I yeah, like I. Maybe the money is not, but <laughs> but you know, but to me, it's all it's all connected, man. Like you know, a creative life is all 360 degrees of you know just being a part of the world. So yeah, 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 um, yeah. You know, I, I agree, and I guess in in certain ways, I kind of kind of sort of write for a living, but. Um, you, I'm, I'm kind of like, I feel like the same way. You know, like I you know sometimes I want to make a beat, but you know. Uh, you know, I know that if I if I start doing it, I'll be sitting you know sitting around all day working on beats rather than you know maybe doing certain things that are that are a bit more um you know you know needy I guess when it comes to certain certain needs that I need to fulfill you know maybe deadlines or whatever like that so um yeah I totally yeah I totally see what you're saying and you know it's so interesting about like hip hop hip hop production is that it's um it is simple. 
but then it can be complex. And I remember like going back to like Rebel Music Academy, and I remember um, LP was on there from you know Duff Jokes or whatever, and he said that the thing that the thing about a hip hop producer is that you know they take from so many genres and they have to you know so they have to listen to all these different genres into you know in order to learn how to sample different things or go about or you know or, or to at least like learn different structures and how to sample from different genres that have you know particular structures in order to expand their sound or whatever you want to call it yeah i mean i, I would agree with them you know um it depends like on the kind of producer you are you know like I have a very large record collection, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, I still buy records, not as often as I'd like, but, you know, um, records are very expensive nowadays. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. a boutique product, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like a premium on records, you know, all of a sudden because it's like, you know, people know that, you know, it's it's kind of like a hip item, you know? Um, but I also have, you know, a lot of like mp3s and things that i've i've downloaded and the the knowledge that you you attain you know if you're like a sample based producer you become kind of a music historian in a lot of ways because you and that's i i i'm gonna make another point right after this that that you know just bear with me for one mm-hmm. second you become a music historian because you you kind of like you study these records and and you study years and you study, you know, like if you let's say you you want you you know like the year 1976, you know people were using these types of instruments in 1976. Like um, certain instruments weren't developed yet, right? So they're you know you know like this ty- this type of guitar and this processing you know was used on the guitar, you know. Um, so and 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 you know that uh, the type of you know guitar that would be played the style of music that you want to sample, it, it came out of, uh, let's say, Ohio, you know? And so now you're going to look for, like, every record that somebody <laughs> made that came out of Ohio, you know? And then what does that lead you to? That leads you to, like, basically a funk history of of Ohio. You're like, now, you're, now you know all this, this information about funk bands and the funk scene and, like, all these different people, you know, um, you know from Ohio. And, and through that... Through knowing that history, now you get a history of the communities there, and now you get a history of, let's say, black communities, and now you get a history of how black communities interact with white communities, and now you get a history of America. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's it, it's like just through you learn so much just from you know like going to look for going to look for records. You know, so people who um, you know, our sample-based producers are geniuses, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, their level of knowledge is often, you know, very deep if they're people who really, you know, get into it in that way. Not everybody does, you know what I'm saying? I'm just speaking from my own experience. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but, like, each each time you go and look for a record, you know, you, you are kind of unfolding a piece of history, you know what I'm saying? And, and every time you you peel it back like an onion, you get to the core of what that that time period and that experience was like for those people, you know? And that, it goes over, over so many different things. I mean, it goes from the arrangements on the records, the instruments used, the style they play, they're playing in, the sound of the record itself, how it was recorded. But I, I, the next point I was going to make was 
that stuff aids you if you're into writing, you know what I'm saying? Because, mm. you know, the more you, you know, the more you nerd out over this stuff, I mean, the easier it is for you to write about music, right? Because you have all this, you have all this, you know, knowledge of it. Um, you know, a lot of people who are into, you know, uh, a lot of hip hop producers who are into, you know, making beats in that way are, you know, I'm not trying to slight anyone, you know what I'm saying? I've just, mm-hmm. I've, it's just something I've noticed, you know, they are a little more culturally aware than a lot of the people I know who, you know, are classically trained. And those guys may be very astute, you know, at, at a certain, uh, you know, piece, uh, element of music, which is the composition and stuff. But I think because they, they, they probably are listening to classical music and all this stuff that's kind of been institutionalized, they mm-hmm. miss out a little bit on, you know, um, just, you know, just shit that was popular and, you know, that was like jamming, you know, uh, in whatever town, you know, that, um, you know, somebody was making funk records <laughs> in whatever year, you know. I go through periods where I'm just listening to like weird fucking like Egyptian, you know, um, disco music and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> any any country I go to, I'm just trying to find the weirdest shit. I, like I'll go to any record store and just be like, what is the weirdest shit you have you know and and that's what like i'm looking for so yeah i agree with you hey i hope you're enjoying the episode since you got this far i wanted to let you know about my other show the channel 10 podcast on channel 10 i have intelligent discussion on hip-hop culture and current social issues with guests from the hip-hop world and beyond expect to find intriguing interviews with hip-hop pioneer schoolie d New York Times bestselling author D. Watkins, and civil rights activist DeRay McKesson. Find Channel 10 on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Now back to the show. Um, let's dig a bit into uh, Wu-Tang Forever. And the first disc, I mean, I guess we can just have a general conversation with Wu-Tang Forever if you want. Um, but uh, yeah, so Wu-Tang Forever, 1997. Um, this is kind of the, you know, this is like the winding down of RZA's five-year plan and everything like that. And it's also a pivotal moment, uh, you know, for the clan in RZA, right? The clan being at their commercial peak and RZA, you know, delving into uh, learning how to, uh, uh, you know, um, do music in a more traditional fashion. So you have more experimentation um, from RZA when it comes to that kind of, uh, when it comes, when it comes to that kind of stuff. But also I would say that, you know, of course, obviously there's more money to be uh, made, more money that the clan had at the moment. And so this album is mixed differently than the other ones, the other, you know, solo albums and the, the first album, 36 Chambers that came before it. But I do think that, this album is also mixed. It just has a different mix out of like I think all of the Clan albums, and it's a mix that I I don't necessarily uh, care for if I do say so myself. But um, you know, with you, Paul, I was looking at your uh, twenty best Wu Tang albums of all time, and I can only imagine how hard that was because you were looking at all of the Wu Tang solo albums, the Wu Tang Clan albums, and some of the affiliates, and. It seems to me, after like you know, reading what you said about certain albums and like where you place Wu Tang Forever, I think I came to to the realization that I think Wu Tang Forever is one of the more divisive albums um, in the entire Wu Tang universe because it seems to me that 
Some people they they love it. They think it's one of the best albums ever. Some people kind of just like just generally dislike it for certain reasons. And some people they can't they kind of have like a love hate relationship with it, which I think you have in certain respects. And also, I was interested in that uh, it didn't it didn't uh, you you didn't place it as higher as I thought you would, but it's still up there at the top. So generally, what are what are some of your you know loves and dislikes about that album, about Wu Tang Forever? Could could I ask you a question? No, what where did I place it in that list? Because I I think I wrote that a couple of years ago and it's not oh. that fresh in my memory. Oh yeah, it was a while. Um, number five, if I'm correct. Oh, and and number one, if I'm not mistaken, is only built for Cuban links, right? No, Thirsty Chambers uh, only built is uh, number two. And is Supreme Clientele number three? I believe so. Yes. Got you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That, that's kind of like my top three. Um. Well, I mean, I I, I think Wu Tang Forever is like a really, really, really good album. It's definitely you know in their top five or you know six records. And in in terms of like just albums in general, like hip hop albums, I would consider it a pretty strong like hip hop classic. I'm not sure everybody else would agree with that, but but I would I would say that, you know I think it's it's a classic album to me. I was listening to it today, right, <laughs> and I know almost every word on the album, and and you know, it, that's a pretty hard album to know every word to, you know what I'm saying? Considering the density of the lyrics and shit like that, you know, um, and just how sophisticated a lot of the writing is, you know, it's like large vocabulary words and you know, um, very intense, you know, rapping. So to know it, you know, that like, and I, and I don't listen to it all the time, you know, in fact, I don't listen to it very often at all, you know, but I could put it on right now and, you know, I just can just go from the beginning to the end of it almost, you know, um, which I think, you know, says a lot about the album and its, and its repeatability. I mean, it was, it was definitely an album that got played a lot, you know, that summer, when it came out and on into the fall, and it continued to get a lot of play. I may actually tell you what I love and I don't like about it. The start of all their problems begin on that album. Uh, the first Wu-Tang album, you know what I'm saying, was a very short record, you know what I mean? It's not like super long, it's only I think 12 songs. And really, not everybody's on every song, right? And if you look at like, a, you know, if you look at them more as like a band, you know, and you know, in hip hop, like the lyricist is 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 the instrument. You know what I'm saying? You have the beat. You know what I mean? And then you have the vocal. The vocal is is the instrument. You know, like like mm. the beat is the beat, and it's very important. And you know, and it has to create a mood, and it has to create a vibe, and it has to create something that you know it draws you in. But the lyricist is is really the instrument that you know commands the attention. And on the first album, you know, it, it, everybody was kind of put together very strategically, you know, um, like it really wasn't like a lot of songs where everybody was on every song, you know. Um, the second album, you kind of like feel like there's there are songs when there's like six people on a song and it really only needs to be like two, you know, <laughs> um, and it's like almost like a little bit bloated. You know, where it was like almost trying to do too much. Um, the mix, I agree with you, is not amazing. One of the reasons why I believe is because they, I think, made that album and mixed it 
or at least recorded it in Pro Tools because at that time, you know, the digital technology was starting to come in, which which had a big effect on how, you know, things like drums would sound. Um, you know, the first couple albums, I would imagine, you know, some of it was probably done on, you know, reel-to-reels or dats or, um, you know, could have even come, come through a four-track. Like, um, some of the stuff on Old Dirty Bastards, you know, first album, like, I'm almost 100% certain that stuff was recorded on a four-track, you know, because you can just listen to it, and you and the simplicity of it, it's only like one or two tracks, and then it's very lo-fi, you know, and it was almost like it was on, it was recorded on a four-track or an eight-track recorder, and they transferred it to a dat, and they put it on a record, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe they brought it into a studio and touched it up a little bit, but for the most part, it's very, you know, it's very simply made. Wu-Tang Forever, you know, is like the technology was starting to get a little more complex. You know, there was not many, I don't remember a lot of samples on that album. I mean, there were some, but I think, you know, it was it was the beginning of RZA starting to play around with a lot of synthesizers um, and, you know, basically trying to uh, replicate, you know, like a very hard sound um, with 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 a soft instrument, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, the kind of like the juxtaposition of those didn't always work on that record, you know what I'm saying? So it was a little bit of a different sound for them. So that's the first record where they're really like that, you know, um, Liquid Swords and all that stuff. The whole album is like samples, you know. So it, it does, you know. That is is definitely a big difference, you know. Um, and so when you listen to it, it gra- it grabs you a little differently. Uh, Reunited, you know, is like a good example of the live like the live drum sounds with you know what I believe might have been a string section or you know possibly a synthesizer and it it being done really well, you know. Um, some other songs where it might not have. Um, I don't know. There's not that many songs on it that I think, you know, didn't really work. I mean, the only one that really jumps out at me is like Black Shampoo. You know, that that one is like, which I understand, you know, to, in my opinion, like I know what you guys was going for with that. Because that's like kind of an ode to like, you know, sort of black, um, you know, hair care and, and, <laughs> and uh, African oils and stuff like that. But that was a record that I just it didn't belong on there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like uh, some other, there are a couple others, but um, I, in, in general, it just could have been a little bit of a tighter album. It needed to be edited a little bit. A couple people could have came off of songs. You know, um, like Triumph is like a five minute single, six minute single, where everybody has like 16 bars. You know or 32 bars or 48 bars. I mean, everybody's rapping, 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 and the beat continuously changes. And don't get me wrong, that's a classic record, as classic as it gets. But Protect Your Neck, everybody has like four bars on that, eight bars, you know? Like, it's so much shorter, and so, and, and the bars are so much more to the point, you know? Like, it just it's almost like what Jizza says. Like, he has that line, you know, where it's like... Um, Damn, I forget the line. It's like uh, half um, something twice strong. It's like, you know, yeah. it's all about like condensing things, you know. And that's kind of where I feel like Wu Tang Forever. If there's any criticism of it that I have at all, it might be that, you know. But generally speaking, 
I, I think Wu Tang Forever is a great album. You know, like I, I mean, I don't look at it in any way as like a bad album. I mean, it's like I said, it's a classic to me. You know, I think you you said it perfectly because the thing about Wu Tang Forever is that it's still an album that whenever I do listen to it, like I don't, um, I don't listen to it as much, um, like like you like yourself, but. Whenever I listen to it, I'm like, well, like, what is it about? I mean, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, it's bloated, a little bloated um, in certain parts, but I'm always trying to figure out why it's bloated. I mean, other than like the songs, and I think the best, I think you you said the best way that, yes, on 36 Chambers, some people had, you know, four bar, four bar verses. It wasn't it's entire 16s, if not more than that. Um, and I do think that to Wu-Tang Forever's credit, um, that's... I mean, it's it's a lot of times that's like the high point of the album, like the fact that you can have uh, Ghostface on Scary Hours, um, you know, just keep going and going, and then they just have to like fade, like fade the track out, or um, you know, or the fact that we get to see Inspector Deck and Master Killer, you know, kind of take on uh, leading roles in certain songs, which we never really, you know, exactly heard before, especially you know Inspector Deck with the Triumvirate, so the kind of freedom that. Um, they did have to roam around and be a bit more experimental. Um, but then I do think in certain ways it was a downfall. So like, I think me and Chris, we, we both agree that, um, black shampoo, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not, you know, like, you know, it's like, so certain things like that. But then at the same time you have duck season where, you know, Raekwon just kind of went crazy. Uh, so yeah, but you know, I think that, and then, you know, going back to like to the mix a little bit. Um, I always have this feeling about the album and that, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you're much more experienced than I am in this. It's like, it's something about the highs, like the, the highs on the album are really, really high. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of a sharp sound an album. You yeah. know I mean? That, like I said, a lot of that, um, a lot of that I think was, you know, just that, like that early experience, you know, with Pro Tools I think it's some of it was even just like the clipping, like digital distortion sounds a lot different than analog distortion. And I don't think people, you know, at that early stage of the game, right? Like, I don't think people realized that the digital distortion was, was, was very harsh sounding and like kind of, you know, wasn't that um, comfortable to listen to. It gives you like a lot of ear fatigue, you know, where you get like a little tired of listening to it. You know, um, analog distortion sounds really good. You know, you, you want to push the meters into the red. You know, you want to get a, a, a kick drum to, to, you know, clip because it, it sound, it'll sound fuzzy and warm. And, it, and, it, and it, it's just like a different, you know, it's a little bit of a different sound. I have to say, though, while we were talking, I, I just pulled up the album on Wikipedia. I mean, I guess maybe it has more samples on it than I realized. Um, you know, the whole second album looks like the, the second CD seems like it was, you know, a lot of samples. So maybe I'm wrong on that, which, you know, I'm, I'm willing to concede, you know, but I'm like looking through the track list and I, I swear, I mean, of this, of the songs, I think that could get cut off is like dog shit. <laughs> I think hell's Windstaff, black shampoo. That's like, those are the only three things I would take off this album, this album, I, I, you know, and then also just looking, looking through some of the songs. I mean, yeah, some like Hell's Windstaff has six verses on it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, every song is just like so long. You know, so so, um, and then just generally speaking, even though like, 
even though I'm talking about the samples and I'm talking about digital technology and all the shit, like I just think the beats themselves weren't as good, you know, as the stuff that um, had been done in the, on the previous albums, you know. Um, like I said, before I came on here, I was like, just, I was listening to this album and I happened to listen to a couple other Wu-Tang records and, and I, I was just listening the other day um, for no reason at all, just, just because I wanted to hear it. I was listening to Liquid Swords and I was just like, you know, the beats on that, on there just are like, they send chills up your spine, you know what I'm saying? They're so incredible, you know, like... They're just haunting, you know, and they were like what we used to say. They were like just sick, you know. The beats on Wu-Tang Forever aren't like that, you know what I'm saying? They're just beats, you know. They're really good, but they aren't they aren't that next level like of what the shit was on the first couple albums, you know, between the first album and the solo albums, you know, whether that be Iron Man or um, even Takao. Like, just the beats just were like had a real like haunting quality to them. They were like eerie and spooky. Um, I mean, even like the Gravediggers album. Which mm-hmm. I'm not even certain if RZA produced it, but I, I think Prince Paul produced. Yeah, uh, produced most of the Gravediggers album. But I think I think RZA produced. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm 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 probably wrong. I think. Um, RZA produced Diary of a Madman, if I'm not mistaken. Like, the first time I heard that, I just, my mind was blown. You know, I like, it was just so sick sounding. And and just hearing it on the radio was like, you just ran to get your tape. You had to tape it. It was like, oh, my God, what am I listening to? I don't mm-hmm. feel like that, that, that was the case on Wu-Tang Forever. Nothing really, even Triumph, you know, the beat is hot, but. It's not. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't hit you like those records did. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Well, what what is your favorite beat off this album? Um, man, I'm looking at it now. There's a lot of good. I'm, I'm saying that saying there's a lot of good beats. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, if I like run it down, I mean, I I love, I love older gods. That's a great one. I I I love it's yours. Um. I love Impossible, uh, Little Ghetto Boys. I love probably you know if I had to, my favorite would probably be Heaters, my favorite one. That might be one of my favorite Wu Tang songs. Period. You know, I mean, uh, I think they should have ended the album with that song. You know, that was like <sighs> the first time I heard that record. I was like, oh man, you know that that was like some shit. To me, that's the maybe the only song on this album that is like on par with the stuff from right before this. You know, like I could have saw seen that on only built for Cuban Links or something like that, where it was just, you know, just sick again. The other one, one last thing I'll say about uh, what you you were at, you know we were talking about some things that might, you know, be little quality problems. The other big issue with Wu Tang Forever is it it didn't really have a theme. You know, hmm. uh, like all the other Wu Tang records had themes to them. You know, uh, like Iron Man kind of like has a has a theme. Like if you listen to it, you know, it's it's kind of got like a a narrative running through it. You know, Only Built has a narrative running. They're all concept albums. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Equal Swords is a concept album. To Cal, maybe a little bit less so. You know what I'm saying? Shimmy Shimmy Yaws, uh, not Shimmy Shimmy Yaws, um, Old Dirty's first album. Kind of a concept album, you know? Wu-Tang Forever, I don't know. What is the concept? I'm not really sure. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it was almost like there was nothing left to prove for them because they were so on fire then. So it's missing that 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 narrative thing that kind of like pulls it all together where you're like, okay, I see what you were going for here. It's a little all over the place, you know. Um, it's a great album, you know, classic album, but it is missing that element. And that, and that I think, affected them a little bit, you know, moving forward because it was like the first, it was the first time where you could see like, you know, the, the, the Wu-Tang, like the, the, um, the mythology of the group was starting to get lethargic, you know, where like the Kung Fu shit and all that shit was not as prevalent. And it was just like, it kind of left a lot of question marks in your head about, you know, where things were going, you know? Actually, before this, um, I got on with you, I was watching the, uh, promotional documentary, um, that came out around, around the time of Wu-Tang Forever for the clan. And, uh, I don't, I don't know, just fighting against the mainstream, pretty much puffy and, uh, saving the world. <laughs> Whatever that really means. For the most part, that, I mean, that was like, that was a big thing that, that summer, right? Was, you know, cause that was, that was a year that, um, you know, Biggie passed away and mm. Puff was really, um, you know, hip hop was going very, very mainstream at that point, you know? So, like the heights that you know puff was taking it to and the, and the style of music that he was making was very um you know it was very i don't want to say commercial but it was very commercial you know and it was very melodic and i mean all he was doing was you know he was he was basically taking a blueprint that like dr dre set he was basically copying dre you know in some ways he took, you know, the the what Dre did with like the Chronic, mm-hmm. and was like, all right, you know, I'm gonna take this this format, which is you know basically doing sort of like R and B hip hop, and uh and and kind of making you know commercial rap records out of it. You know what I'm saying? They're doing it on the West Coast. I'm gonna do it on the East Coast. It just took a long time. You know what I'm saying? For that to really like become like a, a thing you know what i'm saying in hip-hop and wu-tang was like kind of like the kings of the you know they were already commercial but not commercial in that way you know what i'm saying like um they were commercial like in a very unique and very authentic and very hardcore traditional hip-hop way and so they kind of were representing like the like this underground movement you know, of like really ag- aggressive and very pointed lyricism. Um, and, you know, Diddy and those guys were like kind of the antithesis to that. But looking back on it, I mean, all the shit, all that Diddy shit is like classic now to me. You know, yeah. like, I go and listen to it, I'm like, Jesus Christ, you know, these, those albums are so much better than I, I remembered them being. Just because I was like too caught up in this shit, you know, at the time, you know. Like even Biggie, right? I mean, he had like even like Life After Death. I mean, had like a little bit of a theme to it, and he made that record really before he passed away. 
So I feel like Wu-Tang was a little unfocused, you know what I'm saying? Like, they just probably were just swimming in a lot of money at the time. And, you know, it was a lot of drama in hip-hop back then. And, and it was really a lot of question marks about where, despite how popular they were, where a group like Wu-Tang fit in. You know, because they weren't... I mean, like, Biggie and the Frank White thing and all that shit... And like doing the mafia thing. I mean, that was literally him copying Raekwon, you know, like, so, I mean, they started, I mean, theoretically they started it, you know what I'm saying? But people were doing the mafia shit before them, probably just not to the level that they were, you know, like the Wu Gambinos and all that stuff. I mean, they really popularized it. Back then it was just different, man. Now everybody copies each other and like, you know, you get a lot of credit for sounding like another person now. Back then, everybody wanted to sound different. The whole thing was about doing different things, you know? Um, so Wu-Tang was, like, off on its own, you know? And then they became, like, an island into themselves. They became, like, the country of Wu-Tang, you know, <laughs> after that, you know, where you had the affiliates, and you had, the, you know, Wu-Tang the Swarm and all these different, like, offshoots, you know? Um, and... Yeah, they were kind of like a really, you know, a self-contained thing. And then everybody kind of copied that. Rockefeller was a copy of that. Um, in a lot of ways, Bad Boy copied it. Uh, no Limit copied it. Uh, everybody copied Wu-Tang. Mm -hmm. You know, that format, uh, the Diplomats, that format for how to how to make a rap group and do the splinter off thing, they mm -hmm. were the blueprint for it, you know. Um, so... Uh, yeah, but overall, though, I mean, Wu Tang Forever is. You know, I think we can agree, Wu Tang Forever is a you know a great album. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, in, yeah. no, in no way, shape, or form do I think Wu Tang Forever is bad or anything. Like, I can put it on right now and run it front to back, and it's better than literally any album that has come out this year. Like you, when it comes to like my favorite like beat off this album, it also doesn't come from RZA because Heaters, um, True Master produced Heaters. And my favorite uh, beat off this album is Scary Hours, and that's produced by Fourth Disciple. Till this, I mean, Fourth Disciple, he he's an amazing producer, and I do think he's like really slept on like the stuff that he did with Killer Army and just like the stuff that he's doing now. Like I know he came out with the song with um uh PD Crack and everything like that, but um you know I always look I always look forward to like a fourth disciple track on a on a Wu Tang record, whether it's a um you know um a solo record or um a Wu Tang uh clan album in general. But yeah, so um for, so like for my favorite tracks I would think I think overall favorite tracks overall, I think Scary Hours um kinda sets the tone for me. And also because this is something that I've been talking about for I don't know how long. And this is this idea of Wu-Tang sound, whereas I think that the Wu-Tang sound that people kind of think of, I would argue that it doesn't really come from RZA. It comes from like a lot of the killer bees, and especially like Fourth Disciple, True Master, and Mathematics. They kind of like created this so-called Wu-Tang sound, whereas RZA has always been experimental. And I just, it's really hard to kind of pin him down to a particular, I mean, you can don't get me wrong, but like a Wu, like a solid general Wu Tang sound. Because if you ask me, like all of the solo records from the first wave of solo albums, they were all different in their own way. But like how you said, they all had this haunting sound. So I would say that if there is a Wu Tang sound per se, um, when it comes to RZA, it's more it's more of an aura than it is like a particular um, concrete sound that you can see in a Fourth Disciple or something like that. 
Yeah. Um, look, I, you know, one thing is, you don't know, right? Like, heck, fucking True Master could have produced all of 36 Chambers. You really have no idea. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, like it's. I'm not saying he did, you know, uh, or that Fourth Disciple produced, you know, the first couple Wu-Tang albums. I'm just saying that it is the record business, you know, and sometimes, you know, people who made certain beats don't get the proper credit. I don't know. I don't know the situation, you know, for sure. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, RNS used to come to my studio a lot, and like RNS would claim he did a bunch of stuff, you know, that he didn't get credit for, that RZA got credit for, you know, and RNS taught RZA how to make beats, you know what yeah. I'm saying? So, you know, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, who did what, you know? Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure, you know, the credits are probably, you know, pretty accurate but you're right you know what i'm saying like the like the elements so to speak they may be a little more responsible for some of that sound than you know than rizza is um and you know rizza himself i love rizza you know what i'm saying and i love his beats and you know i mean he's you know he's the best to me you know what i'm saying but RZA has a lot of weak shit. I mean, let's just be honest, right? I mean, he's got a lot of beats that are just not good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's like you just have to be real about it, like whether you're a fan or not. It's just some of his shit is just not hitting. And so when you look at some of the problems that they've had over the years, you mm-hmm. know, with them complaining about him, <laughs> it's like you have to wonder, like, damn, did he even make those beats? Because how could this guy, you know, who made all these classic records be making this weak shit? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe he didn't make those because the one time we get, we allow him to make something, he makes like eight diagrams or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I should also say I like, you know. I, I, you know I, I'm not, it's not that I don't like that record. I'm just I'm just using it as an example as they as the clan members themselves have you know said that they had issues with that album. You know, I'm just saying, is this the same guy that made, you know, thirty six chambers? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like just a theory. <laughs> mm. You know, well, you are the very first person to ever like because usually, you know, when, when I when I bring up like the whole idea of the Wu Tang sound, um, you know, people they say, Well, no, no, you know, like, you know, RZA, you know, is the reason for that sound, but it's it's an interesting topic. I guess overall though, so um I think you said impossible, you said uh heaters. Um what other what are what are um some of your other favorite tracks off this uh, off well off the album overall, fuck it. Um, I definitely think Lil Ghetto Boys is one of the best songs on the album. Yeah. Um, that's definitely, you know, uh, a, a favorite. Impossible has that, you know, that great uh, Ghostface verse. Uh, probably one of your uh, better, um, like, you know, storytelling verses in hip-hop. The City is a good record, you know what I'm saying? That that one is like that, so- that Inspector Deck solo song. You know, a little bit of a platform for him, I guess, was kind of trying to set him up a little bit for his solo record. The MGM is, you know, a, a really strong song. Uh, I feel like, if I'm not mistaken, that's the song that kind of like is about the Tyson Holyfield fight. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like I can listen to it now and it just brings back a lot of memories because I remember watching that fight on, on, you know, on TV and all that. 
Um, so yeah, those, I mean, that's on the second, you know, on the second disc. On the first one, um, Scary Hours is, you know, is up there. Uh, For Heaven's Sake, I always loved because it just had a very hard, you know, kind of like aggressive, like uh, stomping type of sound. It's very much like a uh, clan in the front, um, mm. you know, just just a very like uh, almost you could see, like a militaristic, you know, uh, type of sound to it. Visions is a song that I'm not 100 percent certain, you know, I could have probably done without that song. Um, Severe Punishment. Also, I'm not in love with, you know. It's cool, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not that amazing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I would say overall, though, the second disc is, is a little better than the first one. Yeah, those are some of the some of the ones that jump out at me. And then you have, like, A Better Tomorrow, you know, that that song, I think is a message that, you know what I'm saying, kind of like message music and rap don't really always go together that well. But I think that was, like, them showing their their sophistication and their age a little bit you know i would assume that at the time this album came out although i don't remember exactly how old everyone was that was i would assume everybody was by then like around 27 or 28 maybe maybe like jizza was the oldest one maybe he was 30 you know Mm -hmm. and even that i'm not so certain about it he might have been a little younger than that you know um I mean, I feel like around that time, you know, you, you know, that's when your mind starts kind of just as a person, you know, you start kind of seeing things a little bit differently, you know, and you, you know, rap itself becomes less about what you want to say and, and more about just, you know, some sort of outlying message about how you might see the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, that kind of the message on that song kind of came across you know obviously on their last official album because that was what they called it i mean it's yours is like one of the best wu-tang songs ever you know what i'm saying uh that was just um i always loved the video for that you know where they're on the tour i believe that was probably on that tour where it was like we're rage against the machine and yeah and all that um but they just look like they're having so much fun that was like a kind of um like a victory lap song, you know, and uh, it was just very simple, you know, very kind of like not a not a very like complex song. It's just them rapping and, and just very powerful. Yeah, so that's that's one of my favorites as well. Yeah, well, I would say that I think the first disc is, is stronger than, than the second one, but um, I think Scary Hours, Older Gods, and For Heaven's Sake, for especially For Heaven's Sake, the, the, um, the same reason why you said it, kind of like, um, gritty feeling. I'm assuming it's because of that um, that kind of uh, synth they had, like he has, RZA has throughout, um, like throughout in the background or whatever, whatever that thing is. Yeah, I think the first disc is really strong. I think that I could live without that intro though. It's, it's too long. If it was about two minutes long, I probably wouldn't care that much. But you know, it's. I can only imagine how it was, you know, like the like the kind of anticipation you guys had, like listening to it when it first came out, and then you had to get through like that first that first intro. Yeah, I mean, it you know, it wasn't like too bad because 
you know, we were at that time we were already listening, you know, on a CD player. It wasn't like we was listening on a tape, you know. <laughs> so we could just skip it, you know what I'm saying? This was fun. But I gotta, I gotta have you back on again just for some other stories or just to talk about another album and everything like that. Um, if you don't, you know, if you don't mind, but. Um, in the meantime, where can people find your writing? Where can people find you? Um, I mean, usually people just can keep up with me, like on my Twitter account, which is you know backslash my name, Paul Cantor, P A U L C A N T O R, and you know I, I periodically just post links to my work there. I write a lot on a on a website called Medium, and uh, you can always find my work there as well more like personal writing but some music writing as well um and yeah that's that's really it you know um i I, you know as as far as anything else i'm working on a book now so hopefully you know in the next you know couple months we'll have some news you know about where people can you know check that out um but yeah I'm i'm always pretty active you know publishing a lot of different stuff so just on my twitter account which is you know where you can, uh, you know, find whatever I'm up to. Um, I want to thank you for having me on um, and allowing me to nerd out a little bit with you about, you know, great about a great album, you know, and a group that, um, you know, is my favorite group, uh, and you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, is like, you know, people. Because I recently wrote something about the new Wu Tang album. Mm-hmm, on Mass Appeal, right? Yeah, and, you know, sometimes you're constrained a little bit by, you know, the the limitation of just what you're trying to get across in an article, and, and sometimes the, the platform is not right for what you even want to say. But, you know, like, for years people have called Wu-Tang the Rap Beatles and stuff like that, and, like, they are not the Rap Beatles. They are just... There are the, the, the rap Wu-Tang Clan, you know, like Beatles is the Beatles and like we shouldn't compare, you know, hip hop groups to, you know, there's not no disrespect to the Beatles because the Beatles are, you know, legendary in their own right. And for that generation, the Beatles and future generations, the Beatles will always be the Beatles, you know, but we need to, you know, as a as a hip hop audience and a community and and just a generation of people, you know what I'm saying, black, white, you know, Indian, Arab, you know, uh, Chinese, Korean, whatever. All of us grew up on this music and, you know, we need to stop comparing, you know, rap groups to, you know, you know, white groups from Liverpool, you know, um, England, you know what I'm saying? Like we're shortchanging our, you know, the, the champions of our culture by doing that. You know, so we need to just acknowledge Wu-Tang is the fucking best rap group of all time. You know, I'm willing to debate that with people. You know, some people will say Public Enemy or um, NWA or Run DMC or any number of rap groups. You know what I mean? But uh, Wu-Tang is is the best at being (laughs) Wu-Tang. You know, and that, you know, to me, that was something I wanted to say in that article, but it just wasn't really the space for it. You know what I mean? And um like you know that's important you know what i'm saying like we're all getting older hip-hop's like 40 years old or nearly and you know we need to stop being like you know comparing shit to like white people shit you know what i'm saying and i'm saying that as a white person <laughs> you know <laughs> um so yeah that's it well cool well 
This has been another edition of the Wu-Tang Podcast. You can check us out at Wu-Tang Podcast on SoundCloud, Wu-Tang Podcast on Twitter. Uh, please rate and subscribe on Apple iTunes. Well, not Apple iTunes. Uh, Apple Podcasts, if you will. And if you want to come on the show, if you want to, um, you know, kick it with me, have some some good old Wu talk or whatever like that, you want to talk about a particular album that you love or that you hate, hit me up at WuTangPodcast at gmail.com or at SingarSuperior at gmail.com or even on Twitter. I'm, I'm relatively active. I'm trying to be more active on social media. It's not really working the way I want it to, but nonetheless, hit me up if you want to. And with all that said, we are out. Peace.